So we uh, have been looking at uh, Tantra in uh, more and more depth, and uh, we have seen that it refers to an everlasting continuum and also to a loom, the strings of a loom on which we can weave many things. And uh, we have seen that uh, this everlasting continuum uh, refers on the basis level to our Buddha nature factors. Uh, these are the uh, two networks of positive force and deep awareness and the void nature of the mind and that these uh, networks can be stimulated by some enlightening influence, uh, stimulated to grow. But when we do not have a uh, dedication to enlightenment, so no bodhicitta, and when we don't have some understanding of uh, voidness, then uh, these uh, networks are going to be functioning in a samsaric way under the influence of karma and give rise to uncontrollably recurring samsaric rebirth. And this has been going on with no beginning, and we are tired of that already. It's really boring. It goes over and over again. We get uh, a limited body that is going to be subject to repeated birth, sickness, old age, and death. Whatever happiness uh, we uh, experience is going to change. It's not going to last. It's never going to be enough. It's going to be frustrating. So we can't uh, really enjoy things uh, thoroughly in a pure way. We're always worried that we're going to lose it. And, uh, or, you know, the food's going to make us fat. Or uh, the flowers are going to make us sneeze. Or these sort of things. So it's not uh, a very pure enjoyment. And our behavior is going to be uh, compulsive under the influence of these disturbing emotions and uh, the uh, environment that uh, we find ourselves in is uh, going to be conducive not for positive behavior but uh, conducive for more confusion and difficulties. So this is really uh, not very satisfying. But uh, if we follow the uh, Sutra path, as Buddha taught, put in a great deal of effort in uh, gaining all the realizations as outlined, not only in Lam Rim, but uh, the graded stages, but mind training texts and uh, the uh, extensive explanations of uh, what we actually practice on the uh, five paths. It's explained in uh, filigree or ornament of realizations of Isamayalankara. If we practice all of that over uh, three countless eons, so that countless is just the largest number possible, so three zillion eons of building up more and more positive force, in other words, strengthening this network and gaining more and more deep awareness of uh, voidness specifically, voidness of uh, the... 16 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, to be more specific, then we can attain enlightenment. So instead of these two networks giving rise to uh, samsaric rebirth, they will uh, give rise to the uh, enlightening bodies of a Buddha. So parallel to uh, how these uh, networks give rise or ripen into various 
aspects of a, of a samsaric rebirth, they will give rise to parallel type of things as a enlightened being. So body, speech, and mind of a Buddha, which is unlimited. And instead of uh, this uh, unsatisfying type of happiness, we'll have blissful awareness. And uh, instead of compulsive behavior, we will have uh, enlightening activity or behavior, which is motivated purely by compassion and accompanied by wisdom. And we will create around us pure land in the sense that everything will be conducive in our presence for others to make speedy progress on the path. And how will we be able to uh, bring about that uh, transformation so that uh, these uh, Buddha nature factors will give rise to enlightenment? Well, of course, we need the understanding of uh, voidness that will abide and continue as our nature body so that uh, with the understanding of voidness, we fully understand dependent arising and we understand all the various things that uh, we need to do, the causes for being able to bring about the attainment of enlightenment as their result. And we won't have any naivety about any of that. We will understand how it will all function so that we have confidence in it. Understanding is not just so that we have, you know, some intellectual knowledge and, you know, how great I am because I know all the facts. That's not the point. With that uh, understanding comes self-confidence. With self-confidence and trust in the path, we can put our hearts fully into it. And, of course, we need bodhicitta. We need to aim for our enlightenments, which have not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of these Buddha-nature factors. Now, in order to focus on our not-yet-happening enlightenments, we need to have some uh, object that uh, represents it. So there are many, many objects that we can use. We can use uh, the uh, visualized image of a, uh, a Buddha, or more extensively, a whole tree of objects of refuge, and focus on that with a combined refuge in bodhicitta. We can focus without uh, something actually appearing, but in a little bit more, uh, what should we say, what's called unaimed type of way on the uh, nature of the mind, pure nature of the mind, either only the deepest nature or both conventional and deepest nature of the mind, as we would do, let's say, in Mahamudra or Dzogchen type of practices that represents our not-yet-happening enlightenment. So we can focus on that with bodhicitta. Uh, but uh, if we look to uh, Tantra, then uh, we can focus on ourselves already in a form with all these characteristics of uh, body, speech, mind, enlightening activity, blissful awareness, pure land, etc., as a Buddha figure. This is what we do in Tantra. And uh, this is something which can uh, be uh, generated from our Buddha nature factors. And uh, it is uh, very efficient because uh, it is very similar to the result that uh, we want to achieve, that we aim to achieve. 
and it uh, is uh, very efficient for many different uh, reasons. For instance, uh, if uh, we look at uh, an object for attaining single-minded concentration, what we would want to focus on, if we focus on our own ordinary bodies, for instance, then uh, that's not a very stable object of uh, focus because our body is changing all the time. We get a pain in our knees, we get an itch, we feel hungry, <laughs> yeah, all these sort of things are changing all the time. So the object for uh, concentration and uh, uh, the object, the basis for focusing on, the, uh, on voidness, if we're going to focus on the voidness of the body, is also going to be affected by that basis. So uh. it's not very stable. So this is uh, particularly significant when we are focusing on the voidness of the body, that the basis is changing all the time. And not only is it changing all the time with an itch and uh, a pain in our knees, but uh, also we uh, tend to have uh, all sorts of uh, negative projections about our bodies. You know, that I'm fat, I'm old, I, uh, I'm not pretty enough, uh, all these sort of uh, things, which also, in a sense, uh, infect our meditation on voidness. Because, obviously, it's going to be conceptual to start with. So it's, uh, it's going to be infected by these other concepts that we have about our body. Whereas, uh, when we focus on ourselves appearing in the form of one of these Buddha figures, these yidams, or deities, then this uh, figure never changes. I mean, you can say that it is uh, affected by causes and conditions, so it's an impermanent phenomenon in that sense, but uh, it always remains the same. So Chenrezig doesn't get an itch, Chenrezig doesn't get hungry, Chenrezig doesn't grow old, doesn't get fat, all of these uh, sort of things. So when we focus on the voidness of the appearance of ourselves as Chenrezig, we have a very, very stable object to always come back to the same thing every time that we do the meditation. So that uh, the basis for voidness doesn't change in that sense. So it is more conducive for attaining perfect concentration. And uh, when we speak about uh, trying to get uh, compassion and wisdom together in uh, one moment of uh, cognition, one type of cognition, then uh, that's uh, very difficult in terms of uh, sutra because uh, compassion or bodhi, uh, uh, bodhicitta, compassion is uh, focused on other suffering the way of uh, taking that is, may it be gone. Whereas the focus on voidness is uh, focused on no such thing as uh, this impossible way of existing. It doesn't correspond to, any, to how things exist. So these are two quite different types of uh, mind. And you can't put both of them together in one mind, one type of consciousness. We can have different types of consciousness at the same time. We can see and hear, but we want to get uh, method and wisdom together in one 
consciousness, and both explicit. So that's very difficult. That's not possible in uh, using simply compassion and non-conceptual cognition of voidness. So what, uh, uh, you know, we're talking about causes, and when you talk about method, we're talking about a cause for, the, for a body of a Buddha, an appearance of a Buddha. So compassion, etc., will uh, is very important, and conventional bodhicitta is very important. And we have that uh, implicit, in other words, the uh, object of it is not appearing in sutra. When we focus on voidness, it's sort of underlying and accompanying, but it's not explicit, you know, there, which is what we want to have as a Buddha. So in uh, Tantra, we have uh, a method for putting cause for a body and the mind of a Buddha explicitly in one moment of one type of consciousness. So how is this possible? So now it becomes uh, very interesting when we start to analyze. If we were to focus on the voidness of our ordinary body, for example, our ordinary body is not a cause for the body of a Buddha. So that doesn't work as a method. And although in Tantra, first we focus on the voidness of the ordinary body, and you uh, focus on uh, voidness, and then uh, space-like voidness, and then you arise in the uh, form of a Buddha figure, and then you have illusion-like understanding of uh, voidness, so the voidness of that uh, Buddha figure, that's not exactly what is referred to as uh, having method and wisdom in one mind. Just there, the understanding of voidness is uh, implicit. It's not appearing. What would appear with voidness is a total absence of any appearance. So if we look at the texts, what the texts say is that uh, we want, at the time of non-conceptual cognition of voidness, that it says that that mind appears as the deity. So then you ask, what in the world does that mean? Because if it's going to appear, that body of the Buddha, you know, this Buddha figure is going to appear with an appearance of truly established existence. Because we're not yet Buddhas. So we can't have explicit, in other words, both appearing, body of a Buddha, which could, because it's going to appear as truly existent, and voidness, which is the absence of truly existent. You can't have both, you know, something and the absence of that something at this, appearing at the same time. So, when I uh, asked my teachers about that, then uh, what they explain is that uh, as you are focusing on voidness, you know, imagining that we have non-conceptual cognition of voidness, at that time, you have a body, don't you? And that body is as a Buddha figure. So it is simultaneous with that cognition of voidness, despite the fact that it doesn't appear. And it's not our ordinary body, because that's not a, something that uh, is going to be a cause for enlightenment. It's a, the body of a Buddha figure. And Sirkin Rinpoche used a very uh, down-to-earth example. He said, while you're sitting here and uh, having this lesson, are you wearing clothes? Yes. 
Are you actually thinking about the clothes that you're wearing and what they look like? Well, unless you're terribly narcissistic, no. Nevertheless, you are wearing your clothes while you are sitting here and meditating or listening. So it's the same type of thing. So it's like this in Tantra that we uh, practice having method and wisdom together in one moment. Explicit, even though the, the clothes are not appearing, even though that body is not appearing, but it is explicit in that moment. Because while you are focusing on voidness, you do in fact have that body as Buddha figure. So this is uh, very efficient for being able to attain that as a Buddha. So there are many, many benefits of uh, working with these uh, Buddha figures. And uh, we can study deeper and deeper if we wish. So this is in addition to these Buddha figures being infographics that uh, uh, we can weave on all of their arms and legs and faces and so on, all the different realizations of the path that they represent. So let that sink in for a moment. Okay, there are, in the uh, new tradition of Tantra, so Nyingma is the old tradition, Tantra is the uh, Kagyu Sakya and uh, Gelukpa. Geluk are the new tradition Tantras. And uh, in those uh, Tantras, we have uh, four different classes of Tantra. And uh, in uh, the highest class of Tantra, Anutra Yoga, we are going to uh, work with the subtlest level of mind. That's called the clear light mind. And uh, there, we are talking about uh, how we have uh, different levels of subtlety of consciousness. We have... Uh, coarse consciousness, or rough consciousness, or gross consciousness, however you want to call it, which is uh, sense cognition. Then we have uh, our uh, mental cognition, which can be either uh, conceptual or uh, non-conceptual. And uh, there are levels of uh, subtlety of that, like when we're awake, when we're asleep, when we're under anesthesia, uh, etc., when we're in a coma, 
uh, in which uh, the uh, mental consciousness is further and further withdrawn from the body, from sense cognition. When we are asleep, we can be woken up by noise, by an alarm clock. When you are under an anesthesia, having an operation, you aren't, you don't wake up because of uh, any noise. So consciousness is more and more withdrawn. So uh, the most subtle level of uh, consciousness is completely withdrawn, not only from sense cognition, but also from these levels of mental cognition, uh, is called the clear light mind, the subtlest level of consciousness. And this is something which uh, continues all the time through each rebirth and uh, uh, through the whole death process and continues into enlightenment as well. And the Buddha has only this type of consciousness. And this type of consciousness has uh, many, many advantages over other types of consciousness. First of all, it's automatically non-conceptual. Conceptual mind is grosser than this level of mind. And uh, it doesn't make appearances of truly established existence and doesn't believe in them either that it corresponds to how things actually exist. So it is more subtle than that. But uh, it uh, doesn't necessarily understand voidness. It's not uh, necessarily blissful or anything like that. And uh, it uh, manifests at uh, the time of death. So death consciousness doesn't have, uh, it's not blissful, doesn't have any understanding of voidness, but it is this most subtle level. And it's not conceptual. But uh, if we can access that uh, level of uh, consciousness in meditation, then we can make it into a blissful mind, and we can make it as a blissful mind take as its object voidness. And if we can do that, it will automatically be non-conceptual. So this is uh, what we try to do with uh, the practices of Anutra Yoga Tantra, this highest class of Tantra, and it's on that class where we find Kala Chakra, we find uh, Guhya Samaja, Vajra Bhairava, Chakra Samvara, Vajra Yogini. All of these are Nutri Yoga practices. And there are other figures as well, but these are the main ones that are practiced in the Galup tradition. Now, there are many methods for uh, attaining access to that uh, clear light mind. We don't have to go into... Uh, all the different types of uh, methods that are used in uh, Nutri Yoga Tantra. But uh, the point being that uh, if we look at the samsaric situation, remember these uh, networks of positive force and deep awareness under the influence of uh, ignorance, karma, disturbing emotions, etc., that uh, they give rise to uncontrollably recurring rebirth which means in between each rebirth, there's going to be death. And uh, after death, there's going to be bardo, which we appear in some subtle form, and there's going to be rebirth. And this is analogous to what happens every time that we go to sleep. Go to sleep, there is a withdrawal of consciousness, similar to not going all the way down to clear light mind, but similar that we have an appearance in dreams and then we wake up. So it's analogous. So what uh, we want to do is to uh, follow a path in our practice, which is going to be similar to what happens in uh, 
ordinary samsaric type of life. But uh, when we get down to that uh, clear light uh, level, then uh, at least in our imagination, then it's like going down into the basement of a house that has two rooms. And the uh, electricity stairs going up to uh, one room and the electricity going up to one room is the samsaric rebirth room. What we want to do is to go down to the basement and change the circuit so instead of the electricity and everything going up to that samsara room, it goes up instead the staircase to the other room, to enlightenment. So this is what we do. We want to get down to that clear light level and then change the circuitry. In other words, get understanding of voidness. And of course, there's bodhicitta, which is why we want to go down to the basement to start with. And then uh, we imagine that we arise in first a subtle form and then a gross form, like dream or being awake, or like bardo or rebirth. So like Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya. So we have two stages in a Nutri Yoga Tantra of practice. On the uh, complete stage, we are actually able to generate the subtle winds into the form of uh, these uh, Buddha figures. So uh, we're actually doing something which will be the immediate cause for, or creating something which will be the immediate cause for the attainment of the bodies of a Buddha. And on the generation stage, we just imagine that uh, happening. And by imagining it, it uh, builds up causes for it actually to happen with the energy winds, the subtle winds, and for it to, and by practicing with the subtle winds, then we will uh, eventually be able to have that happen on the subtlest level uh, with the attainment of enlightenment. So this is a very brief explanation of uh, how the whole Anutra Yoga Tantra path fits into what we have been discussing because out of that, uh, those Buddha nature factors, we can generate all the uh, various uh, features of samsaric rebirth. We can generate all the features of a Buddha figure with imagination. We can generate all of these aspects of a Buddha figure with the subtle energy system. And we can generate all of it in terms of the, that clear light level as a Buddha. So there are all these levels. And all of this is working on the basis of these Buddha nature factors and its ability to give rise to these things. And these Buddha nature factors are able to give rise to all of these because they lack self-established existence because of their voidness. Because of that, that means that they can be affected by all sorts of other factors like bodhicitta, like uh, understanding, correct understanding, like uh, all the positive things that we do and so on. Because they are not self-established, they are affected by all these other things, and because they are affected by other things, then dependent on that, we have as a dependent arising all these either samsara level, imagination level, <laughs> subtle energy level, or Buddha level. What uh, these uh, Buddha nature factors will give rise to. So that understanding of voidness as meaning dependent arising is very, very essential for being able to be confident 
in our practice of what we're doing and that it will work. One uh, last uh, piece of advice for this morning is uh, how do we actually visualize? It's very important to understand what the process of visualization actually is. Because uh, throughout the day, we are instructed to imagine ourselves in the form of Buddha figures, imagine everything around us as a pure land, and everybody else being Buddha figures as well. So how do we do that? Well, of course, the most difficult thing is to remember to do that, which means being mindful. Mindfulness is the glue, the mental glue that holds on to, you know, in this case, uh, that visualization and doesn't let go. So we have to remember that's incredibly difficult to do. But when we do remember to do that, then uh, first of all, we need to understand that this is uh, conceptual, which means that we need to understand how conceptual cognition works. So, conceptual cognition, we have, first of all, a category. The category is static. It doesn't change. And that category is going to be, let's say, Chenrezig. So anytime we think of Chenrezig, it's always going to fit into the same category. We're thinking of Chenrezig, whether it's small, whether it's large, whether what, how clear it is, doesn't matter. Like, uh, we have a category of dog. And no matter what dog we see, what it looks like, doesn't matter what kind of dog it is, we fit it into that category of dog. Now, being static, you know, it doesn't change, doesn't grow old, doesn't, you know, anything, sort of category. Category has no appearance, no form. So then we have something that represents it, you know, some, some form that is going to represent it. So we have uh, some form that represents Chenrezig just as we would have some form that, you know, think of a dog, and each of us has some different mental image of what a dog, you know, to us would look like. So through that category and what represents it, a mental image, a hologram, basically, mental hologram, then we see through that an actual dog. If we're thinking in terms of that example of a dog, so, visualization, we see with sense cognition are ordinary things that we see. Otherwise, you know, while trying to visualize yourself as Chenrezig, you'd be hit by a car trying to cross the road. So, we see our ordinary world and our ordinary selves, but we see it through the mental filter of this concept, this category of Chenrezig and a mental image of Chenrezig. So it's sort of a mixed type of thing that I see this person and in my mind I see them through the filter of a mental image of Chenrezig. Or I think of myself like that. That's how you visualize. So don't try to use your eyes for visualization. That's a big mistake. It's not visual cognition at all. Most of us certainly don't have some, unless you're looking in a mirror, we're not really thinking in terms of what I look like. What does my face look like at the front of my head? I mean, generally we have no idea what our face looks like, actually. Try to imagine your face on the front of your head. That's not very easy, is it? So it doesn't matter what we're seeing when we're visualizing. 
The point is not to put a great deal of attention on what we're seeing, unless you want to cross the street. But if we're just sitting in meditation, then you're not really paying you know, attention to seeing the wall in front of you. <laughs> nevertheless, you're seeing the wall. But nevertheless, we can uh, imagine. So in our mind's eye, as it were, then we have the image of Chen raising of ourselves or of other beings. And that's how you visualize a multi-layer type of thing. And then it doesn't matter in terms of, you know, what's in the front of the visualization, what's behind in the visualization. I mean, with your eyes, you can't see what's behind, you know, the back of your head. But in the mental hologram, you can have that because it's not visual. Okay? Good. So now we have time for questions. Could you please uh, tell something about lucid dreams? Uh, what would you comment on that? Remember, we said that uh, just as we have death, bardo, and rebirth, which are analogous to basically dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, and nirmanakaya, in terms of the attainment of a, of a Buddha, likewise we have being asleep, dreaming, and uh, being awake. So during that uh, dreaming process, If we can become aware that uh, we are dreaming, then uh, it is uh, very conducive for two types of meditation practice. And that's what we want to do, is use the lucid dreaming in order to do meditation practice in the dream. So we uh, would uh, want to do our sadhana practice in the dream, because uh, you don't have the distraction of sense consciousness. So uh, doing the uh, visualizations and all the practices of uh, the sadhana would be with uh, much better concentration and much more uh, vivid in the visualization during the dream than it would be while awake. Obviously, you have to be very well trained in the sadhana for it to happen during your dream. And uh, then to do voidness meditation in the dream, uh, both space-like voidness, so, you know, Although the dream appears to be uh, truly existent, you know, the images, it is devoid of that. So you focus on the absence of that, and then the dream appears again. You know, yourself as the Buddha figure in the dream, that uh, this is like an illusion because you are aware that it is a dream. It is much easier to be aware that it is like an illusion. So, this lucid dreaming practice is incredibly advanced. If you do it properly, I mean, just to be aware that you're dreaming, so what? You know, so I can fly, I can have, you know, all sorts of fun in my dream. Yeah, that's not the point. And the more familiar we become with uh, the appearances in the dream uh, being like an illusion, that they appear to be truly existent, but they are not, it uh, then will help us to be more aware of that uh, while we're awake. The most difficult part is uh, initially... You know, the most difficult part of this uh, dream yoga is, uh, at the beginning, how to avoid when you realize that it's a dream from waking up. Because usually when you realize that it's a dream, you wake up. So how to stay dreaming without just pretending that you're dreaming, but actually you're awake. That's very, very difficult. Next question.
As far as I understand, it is recommended uh, first to study uh, the outer tantras, Kriya, uh, Charya and Yoga tantras and only then go to Anutra Yoga Tantra. Nevertheless, uh, mostly we hear the explanations somehow about Anutra Yoga Tantra and uh, the question no, no, is... Uh, yes, Anutra Yoga Tantra. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, if I want to study, uh, to begin with the Kriya Tantra and so on, uh, which tantric systems would you recommend to study? Of Kriya? Uh, I mean, uh, I think it's Tsongkhapa who recommends to begin with Kriya, then go to Charya, and then go to Yoga Tantra, and only then to proceed with Anutra Yoga Tantra. But the problem is that we don't get much information about outer tantras and we immediately somehow get explanations of Anutra Yoga Tantra. And then if I personally want to study the previous levels, how to proceed, what to study, which systems. Okay. Tsongkhapa himself, in uh, one of his uh, short texts, in which he uh, sometimes called lines of experience, he uh, recalls his own spiritual uh, path. And uh, Tsongkhapa pretty much studied everything that was available at the time with teachers from every possible uh, tradition. And so he says that uh, he uh, first studied uh, Kriya Tantra, then Charya Tantra, then Yoga Tantra, and uh, only on the basis of uh, studying and practicing these did he really uh, appreciate the depth and profundity of Anutra Yoga Tantra. Well, most of us uh, don't have that capacity to uh, do that. So uh, if you look at the way that most Tibetans uh, practice, they don't practice just uh, Anutra Yoga Tantra. They usually practice uh, some sort of Kriya Tantra as well. So it's quite rare that you'll find uh, uh, any Tibetan master who is uh, proficient in Charya or Yoga Tantra, although they would know the theory in terms of the Tantra paths. But uh, in Kriya Tantra, the, uh, uh, you'll find that almost all the Tibetans will uh, do some sort of uh, Chenrezig practice, that's Kriya Tantra. They will do some sort of Tara practice, especially uh, long-life white Tara uh, practice, that's Kriya Tantra. Uh, they'll do some Manjushri practice. These are the most commonly uh, practiced uh, forms in, in uh, Kriya Tantra. And although there are Anutra Yoga forms of Chenrezig and Tara and uh, Manjushri, nevertheless, uh, they will practice Kriya Tantra forms of, that, of them. And then you have to ask them for the instructions. Now, of course, in uh, Kriya Tantra, they have uh, what's called uh, the stage with signs, the stage without signs, just a name of the two stages. And uh, how many of uh, the Tibetans actually will practice the full path of uh, Kriya? Uh, all the way to uh, the stages, you know, right before the attainment of enlightenment, that's uh, hard to say. But uh, if they do Kriya Tantra practice, which they all do, it would probably be mostly focused on the stage with signs, which is referring to the equivalent of the generation stage, in other words, the visualization practices. Next. Uh, the question is about what precisely we refer to when we speak about the third aspect of uh, Buddha nature factors, our ability to get inspiration, uplifting from our um, teachers. Uh, do we speak about the capacity, the ability itself, or what exactly it refers to? Uh, basically, they say that uh, 
they just call it a factor imputed as an imputation on the mental continuum that uh, can be affected by you know, so-called inspiration or enlightening influence, sometimes translated as blessings of uh, Buddha. So it's an imputation. Now, if we want to get terribly technical about that, since I think you like technical things, then uh, we would uh, say we have a mental continuum. We have uh, five aggregates, make that up. We have, uh, as an imputation on that, the conventional me. As an imputation on the conventional me, we have uh, the uh, positive force and tendencies. And we have, it as, an, as an imputation on them, we have a network of these. And whether we uh, speak in terms of uh, the uh, network or we speak in terms of the individual items within that uh, network, we can say that uh, this imputation has an aspect of it's uh, not yet giving rise to a result and uh, an aspect of it which is the ability to give rise to a result when uh, the conditions are complete. And because all of this is devoid of being self-established, it, uh, all of these things can be affected by causes and conditions. So not only what we do, but also uh, through the enlightening influence of a teacher or a Buddha. So because these uh, forces and uh, potentials have uh, an aspect of uh, the ability to give rise to an effect, and they also have an aspect of uh, imputed on it, uh, as an imputation on a not yet giving rise to that uh, effect, they uh, uh, can be affected. So in terms of the voidness and dependent arising of it, therefore, they can be influenced by uh, enlightening influence of a Buddha. So that's if you want to get a very technical analysis of how it works. Uh, you have mentioned about the four bodies of the Buddha, and uh, I listened to these teachings uh, and always have problems with it, uh, get uh, confused, and maybe you uh, can uh, give us some uh, easy example, some maybe analogy or easy way of uh, explanation that I could uh, finally understood this uh, question. Okay. Uh, a Buddha appears in a huge variety of uh, forms. So when we talk about uh, form body, Body means, uh, at least you can use this in English, a body of literature or a body of knowledge. So it's as a network of many, many things. So the analogy that's used in the uh, traditional texts is that uh, the uh, uh, Buddha is like the moon, and that moon can be reflected in all sorts of different bodies of water. So likewise, uh, a Buddha uh, will appear in each person's mind, you know, in terms of the mental hologram that arises when they perceive the Buddha in all these different forms, like the moon appearing uh, reflection in, in all sorts of lakes and uh, puddles of water and so on. So that's the analogy that's used in the text, classical analogy. If you want a more modern uh, analogy, how a, uh, a website can appear in, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of different uh, computer screens and cell phones at the same time. Or a television show. Same thing. A television show will appear on many, many different televisions. 
So the television show that appears on all our televisions is an emanation of, you know, the people in the studio. Modern day example. So, next. Uh, the question is about the term enlightenment. In the Russian, it uh, might sound mystical. Also, it might have some technical connotations. Например, this term is used in optics. Uh, when we uh, make uh, image manifest after uh, making photos. And uh, uh, what is the connotation of this uh, word in English? How it is used? What does it mean? And uh, do you have maybe some alternative translation, like for instance, you suggested uh, going in a safe direction for refuge and uh, so on? Well, I think that uh, it's not so relevant what the English word means. What is relevant is because the English word, this, the Age of Enlightenment, is also used in terms of uh, history of uh, philosophy in the West and so on. So it has, you know, weird sort of means, you know, you wake up. But uh, you need to look at the connotation of uh, Tibetan and Sanskrit. So the Sanskrit word Buddha or Buddhatva, you know, the state of a Buddha. Is, comes from the root which means to be awake. So awake from the uh, sleep of uh, ignorance. So sometimes uh, people translate it as the totally awake one or total awakening, which, uh, you know, is okay. But uh, you can also think of it, you know, I've drunk a, little, a lot of coffee and now I'm totally awake. So... Uh, the Tibetans uh, elaborated on that. So if we look at how the uh, word Buddha, and Buddhahood just makes uh, the, uh, the generic noun at the end of it with an ending. But if we look at the word Buddha, the Tibetans translated it with two syllables. First means to uh, clear out. They have cleared out, gotten rid of all the obscurations, uh, all the limitations. And the second syllable means that they have uh, attained full potential of positive qualities. So this is how the Tibetans translated it. So uh, when I have tried to uh, come up with a, you know, a more precise English translation for the first syllable, clear, so that everything is has, both in English, it's cleared out and then it's clear. You know, so uh, it functions perfectly and evolved, so it has evolved fully, you know, the whole uh, potential, so the clear evolved one, so a clear evolved state. But uh, although I have uh, used that in my uh, earlier translations, and uh, sometimes uh, use that in some explanations when uh, the Tibetans will explain each syllable of uh, the word, in general, it's easier to use the word enlightenment when you're uh, actually speaking so that people understand. But Please. enlightenment just means the light has gone on, so it's a little bit of a silly term. So the Tibetans use this uh, system of translation in which uh, uh, many of the uh, Sanskrit words, they uh, broke up uh, from one word into uh, two syllables and uh, in order to convey the connotation of uh, the word, the way that they uh, were transmitted and the way that the, they understood, a little bit similar to how it was done earlier in Khotan, another a Central Asian kingdom that Tibetans had contact with.
And uh, as Sirkin Rinpoche always said, that uh, you need to be able to milk the meaning out of the term, like you milk a cow, and uh, then you get the full connotation of the word. But uh, at a practical level, it doesn't work <laughs> to uh, use that in uh, general explanations or in translations, because uh, people are not used to that. So uh, you can use that initially to explain what the word means, but uh, then there is our uh, conventions. And already people are familiar with the convention of the word Buddha and the word enlightenment and uh, these sort of words. So uh, in order to communicate with people who are familiar with this uh, terminology and in order to be found in Google search, you need to use these uh, conventional terms. So Google rules all. Unfortunately. Okay, so let's end with the dedication for the morning. Whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. <laughs>